Still piecing together the Boston story today, Monday, April 29th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. In the wake of the Boston bombings, the suspect's uncle said a mystery man named Misha had radicalized the Sarnaya brothers. Reporter Christian Carl tracked Misha down in Rhode Island. I tried to call him on the phone, and I couldn't get him on the phone, so I hopped in the car and drove down there and knocked on the door, and lo and behold, there he was. We'll hear what this mystery man had to say. And later, a Palestinian prisoner ends his hunger strike, calling attention to the Israeli practice of holding prisoners for months without charge. Israel calls the policy of administrative detention a necessary evil. And later, Micronesians settle in the American heartland. I get a lot of that. Missouri? We like it here. (laughs) PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This past weekend was the first truly sunny spring weekend here in Boston since the marathon bombings. City officials urged everyone to reclaim the city after it had been scarred by those two blasts near the finish line two weeks ago. And many from around Boston, but also from farther afield, made it to downtown to do their part. Even musicians were coaxed into the streets to lighten the mood. This is my second time back, and it's just, it's so surreal that any of this happened. That's Betty Young from New York. She ran the marathon two weeks ago, and she returned this weekend to support a friend of hers who got pulled off the course minutes after the bombings and wanted to complete the race. He ran it again on Saturday with Betty as road support, as she put it. Most of the crowd downtown, though, just wanted to see where it all happened. And I just wanted to come because it was so sad to see in the news what happened. Francisco Barrojas from northern Mexico just arrived in town on Saturday. He says he'd been watching the Boston Marathon live on TV back in Mexico, and he felt he just needed to come to the site. Francisco stared sadly at the flowers and the signs of mourning in front of the sports store where the first bomb went off. In Mexico, he said, because of the drug war, They've unfortunately gotten accustomed to the rituals around mourning in the wake of violence. I had some family that had died, actually one cousin, and uh, we usually go to church to us to pray for them. The voice of a Mexican visitor who was in Boston yesterday. Meanwhile, officials continue to investigate what may have motivated the alleged bombers. Some relatives have pointed a finger at someone named Misha, portraying him as a Svengali figure who allegedly pointed the older Sarnayev brother, Tamerlan, in the direction of extremism. Misha, though, had proved difficult to track down until a reporter applied some old-fashioned shoe leather. Christian Carl says he got a tip from a Russian-speaking family near Boston, and that led him yesterday to the door of a man he believes is Misha in Rhode Island. His full name is Mikhail. Misha is the short form of Mikhail. His last name is Alex Vyardov. Well, let me um, ask you just straight up. I mean, how certain are you uh, that the, the man who you met uh, is Misha? Yeah, that's a very important question. Uh, there are two main reasons why I'm pretty sure it's him. First of all, when the Tsarnaev family members brought him up, they described him physically a little bit. And they said that he was an Armenian who converted to Islam, which is a very rare thing. Armenians are very devoted Christians, and they don't tend to convert to other religions very often. 
And uh, when I met him, he, he fit their description pretty well. He does indeed come from an Armenian family. He's a convert to Islam, the guy that I saw. And physically, he was very close to the description they gave. The other reason is simply that when I asked this family in Boston about him, they said, oh, yes, this is definitely the guy. We remember him. They were associating with the Tsarnaevs quite a lot at the time, uh, and they immediately knew who we had in mind. There was no question in their minds that this was the guy that the Tsarnaevs were referring to as Misha. Mm. And when they gave me his full name, it immediately checked out. So everything fell together very neatly. And then when I went to the house and I saw him, he immediately began telling me stuff that I hadn't even started to ask. Like what? And Well, for example, that the FBI had been in touch with him and that he had given them his computer and his cell phone and all of his documents because he was very eager, he emphasized, to cooperate with their investigation. And it was quite striking also because he then told me that the FBI had assured him that they were about to close his case because they concluded that he wasn't guilty of any wrongdoing. And this actually coincided with some media reports that we've been hearing just within the past few days from unnamed officials saying that they were pretty sure that they found Misha, but they decided that he was not a person of particular interest. Um, Why have have they said that? uh, I don't know why. Well, I assume it's for the reasons that Misha told me, which were that uh, they concluded that he was not involved in the organization of the attack and that he was not particularly important for their investigation. Um, But we don't know that for sure. I have to emphasize, it will be very interesting to keep an eye on the news over the next few days and see what the FBI actually says. When I called the FBI in Boston, they refused to come in on an ongoing investigation, which is, you know, what one would expect. But it will be very interesting to see if they have anything to say over the next few days. Well, tell us a bit more about this man you met, uh, Misha. How old is he? What kind of person is he? He's in his late 30s. He made a very personable impression Um, The family told me that he has been unemployed for the past five years, that he is suffering from ill health. Uh, He was actually quite friendly to me. Did he seem like he could be Svengali-like, which is uh, the kind of narrative that we're hearing, that he was a mentor, a a Svengali to to the older Tsarnaev brother? Well, look, anything's possible, right? Uh, The guy I met was very, very uh, meek, let's put it that way, meek and, and... somewhat cowed. He really did not make the impression of, shall we say, a a charismatic person who influences other people in some kind of dramatic way. It's also important to mention that the period when Tamerlan was radicalized, um, most people who who knew him put it around four to three years ago, about the time that his daughter was born. And this guy did say that he knew Tamerlan during that period, But aside from that, it's really hard to know. Uh, Again, this is why it will be very interesting to hear what verdict the FBI has reached if they say anything in the next few days. Yeah, uh, we should say, too, that uh, our own uh, outreach to the FBI for comment uh, has proved fruitless, and they are not commenting either uh, to us. Um, When you spoke with uh, this guy named Misha, does his narrative, did he tell you any episodes of alienation in his life? And his parents, they, they were at the house when you met him. Did they seem comfortably assimilated? Um, I think they they did seem comfortably assimilated. They were very, very nice, friendly people. They wanted to stress that they were very happy to come to this country because they were fleeing conflict in the former Soviet Union, and they'd found a kind of peace and security here, and now they were afraid that all of that was under threat because their son had, you know, been involved in this whole story, and they were 
extremely anxious that it was going to to destroy their lives here. You know, today uh, we're hearing about a Russian raid in Dagestan that killed two militants. We're also hearing that the the mother of the Sarnayev brothers was wiretapped speaking with her older son in 2011, uh, and the word jihad was in the conversation. Does any of this news uh, shed further light on Misha's credibility? Uh, Well, actually, one of the things Misha told me was that he was very bewildered about the family. He claimed that he was very bewildered at the fact that the family would single him out as this, as you said, as this kind of Svengali figure. And he ventured the theory, and of course, I'm not endorsing this because we don't know very much still, but he was actually advancing the theory that the family was trying to divert attention from their own responsibility for for what had happened. But again, we still don't know enough to know exactly who radicalized Tamerlan to this extent that we've seen. We have a link to the reporting that Christian Carl did on the man he thinks is Misha at theworld.org. Christian, thanks so much. Thank you. Christian Carl is a contributor to Foreign Policy magazine and the New York Review of Books. For more than eight months, a Palestinian prisoner in Israeli custody had been staging an intermittent hunger strike. He was calling attention to the Israeli practice of holding prisoners for months without charge. As his fast went on, there were fears that the man's death could spark unrest in the Palestinian territories. But last week, he agreed to end his hunger strike when Israel reduced his prison sentence. Still, the issue of how Israel treats Palestinian prisoners continues to loom large in Palestinian politics, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. Palestinian political divisions run deep, but the almost reverential status in Palestinian society of the prisoners serving time in Israeli jails transcends those divisions. The Palestinian Authority even has a whole ministry that deals with detainees and ex-detainees. The truth is they're treated as heroes, regardless of why they're in jail. That's Minister Isa Karake speaking at a recent news conference. He called two prisoners who died in Israeli jails this year martyrs and blamed torture and neglect for their deaths. Several dozen Palestinians are waiting to enter Israel's main detention facility near the West Bank city of Ramallah. They're visitors here at Ofer Prison to see relatives and friends serving time or appearing in military court. A middle-aged widow who gives her name as Iqbal says she's here just to see her 18-year-old son. He was detained four months ago, and he's being charged with throwing stones at Israelis. That can be a serious offense. A young Palestinian man was just sentenced to two life terms for throwing a rock at a moving car and causing a crash that killed an Israeli father and his one-year-old son. Iqbal says this is the second time she's been through this. Her son was arrested two years ago and got a suspended sentence for rock throwing. Now he could be facing jail time. She says she told him not to throw stones, but he's a boy, she says, and she can't really control him. There are about 5,000 Palestinians in Israeli prisons, and that number has been going down. Six years ago, it was twice that many. 160, or about 3 percent, of all current Palestinian detainees are held under administrative detention. That's the controversial practice of detaining suspects based on classified evidence. During a rare tour of Ofer Prison for international journalists, I briefly met administrative detainee Mohammed Ghazal, 
He's a 57-year-old engineering professor who's been in prison for 17 months, and he said he still did not know why. To hear more about his case, I followed up with Ghazal's wife, Salam, at the family's home in the West Bank city of Nablus. He, you know, a person who seeks for the rights of the Palestinians, he believes that we are uh, people who really uh, have their rights and uh, uh, they need to struggle for them. Ghazal told me that she believes her husband is being held by Israel because of his beliefs. He has a strong Islamist ideology, and like most Palestinians, she said he also believes his people have a right to self-defense. We believe it in it, but we did not practice it. You know, my husband even, he's a very uh, peaceful man. He never believed in um, any kind of violence. In a statement, an Israeli security official said Mohammed Ghazal is a senior official with the Islamic militant group Hamas, and that he is, quote, involved in current activities that endanger public security. Mark Regev is an Israeli government spokesman. The reality is that administrative detention is a necessary evil. It's legal under international law, but I still wish we didn't have to use it. But when you've got these violent, extreme terrorist groups, sometimes you can't put all the evidence in open court, and you're forced to use a tool like administrative detention. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is calling on Israel to release Palestinian prisoners to show its commitment to peace talks. Abbas has raised the issue with Secretary of State John Kerry. So I asked Mark Regev if the Israeli government is considering any such gesture. We are already in the framework of a peace process that is moving forward uh, for mutual reciprocal confidence-building measures taken by both sides. Including on this issue? I can't go into specifics at this stage. Regev also repeated a long-standing Israeli sore point. He suggested that Palestinian officials need to stop holding up the prisoners, including those convicted of killing civilians, as heroes. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Later in the show, rethinking China's draconian experiment in social engineering, the one-child policy. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of WomenHeart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You wouldn't expect Missouri to be a destination for Micronesian immigrants from the islands of the Pacific Ocean, now would you? But they are there, and their story is in sharp contrast to the legal struggles faced by other migrants. Anna Boyko Wyrock reports from southwestern Missouri. Hang around here long enough, and you're bound to meet someone named Ree Hobson. It's a family name in a certain remote country, and in parts of rural Missouri. For the past 18 years, Lou Rehobson has lived in Missouri, in the rural town of Goodman. I get a lot of that, Missouri? We like it here. <laughs> She's originally from the western Pacific island of Pingalop in Micronesia. The island is so small, you can walk across it in an afternoon. Very white sand, blue ocean, palm trees everywhere. But the country's economy is weak. I think we have a better life here. I was working at a bank, but I was making $1.95 an hour. Rehobson wanted to move up. It was 1995, and by then, her aunt and brother had already migrated to Missouri. Rehobson realized the state had a lot to offer. The cost of living was so low. We live in a nice, quiet, small community. 
school system is good. Jobs are pretty easy to find, and they pay better. Like many Micronesians here, one person came for school or work, and then another followed, and another. A good part of the migration is thanks to a treaty signed between the U.S., Micronesia, and other Pacific Island states in 1986. It gave the U.S. access to the area's strategic ocean territory. In exchange, Pacific Islanders were allowed to live and work in the U.S. No visa required. Okay, Rehobson says there was some paperwork, one form handed out on the plane. Then we fill it out and then they staple it to our passports. It doesn't have an expiration date on it. So now, tens of thousands of Micronesians call the U.S. home. Hawaii has long been a popular spot to settle. In the last five years, though, more have headed to the mainland, according to researchers. Oregon is a hub. And so is Missouri, with four or 5,000 Micronesian migrants here. Recently, members of the First Micronesian Church of Christ assembled at dusk. The women wore long white dresses and headbands adorned with foam flowers and fake gems. They lined up by a fire pit and threw in small sticks symbolizing sin, in Easter tradition. Events like this draw hundreds of Micronesians, many related to each other. They live scattered throughout this corner of Missouri, in the foothills of the Ozarks. Ekarine Handy is a church elder. She once dreamed of returning to Micronesia, but now, with four kids, the family is rooted here. My dream was to come here, get an education, and go get a better job. But then it changed. (laughs) Now I'm only living through my kids. I'm going to try my best to raise them in a good way, and then try my best to save up for their education. This community has pulled through hard times. In 2007, a Micronesian man opened fire inside the church. He killed three people, including Rehobson's brother and uncle. It was national news. Rehobson still has the sympathy cards that poured in from across the country. I have a binder this this thick. So that's like three, four inches? Yeah, yeah. I think it brought everybody closer. The close community is key to making Missouri home. Like her first day here, Rehobson remembers how her family picked her up at the airport and brought her to a cookout. They were barbecuing chicken and steak and hot dog. And and then we have this dish that's called pilolo. It's grated tapioca, coconut milk, sugar, and ripe banana. And then you bake it. It's one of our um, signature dish. But that was the day that I was like, wow, this is home. With the cheap living costs, entry-level jobs, and a close community, the question isn't, why are Micronesians in landlocked Missouri? Rather, why would they ever leave? For The World, I'm Anna Boykowirak in Neosho, Missouri. You won't find Micronesian ocean divers in Missouri, but they do have an association in Guam. Hey, there's an association for everything. In Nepal, there's an elephant polo association. There's an international association of youth hypnotists. I'm compelled to mention that. And there's a World Instant Noodles Association based in Osaka, Japan. That one, at least, is at the helm of an industry that now claims to be reaching new heights. And the world's Alex Galifant is about to hand me a cup. Let's get you some noodles. Marco. I'm hungry. I'm ready for it. Thank you. 
In theory, how soon will this be ready? Three minutes, I believe. Okay. Or rather, three minutes definitely. I, along with most everyone I know, have had instant noodles more often than I care to think about. Yes, they're full of salt, but they're not bad tasting, and they're always there when you need them. One airline operating over the Pacific has instant noodles available on demand during long overnight flights, for instance. Hmm. The aroma of instant noodles. Marco and I, and probably you too. We're among the people of the world who collectively now eat more than 100 billion servings of pre-cooked instant noodles or instant ramen each year. That figure was trumpeted this week by the World Instant Noodles Association. It's a trade group based in Japan. It has among the more dull catchphrases around: "Serving excellence, serving happiness." The association's big headline, 100 billion servings annually, is based on its own surveys taken in more than 40 countries. A spokesman called instant noodles a global standard dish. China consumes the most, according to their results, then Indonesia and Japan. Now, lots of people in those countries. Not so many in Belgium, which sits at the bottom of the list, but they have waffles. In Osaka, Japan, you can visit the Instant Ramen Museum. It celebrates the achievement of Momofuku Ando, who invented instant noodles in 1958. They were chicken flavor. At that time, less than a decade after the end of the Second World War, Japan was experiencing severe food shortages, and the noodles helped. Ando worked to make them tasty, inexpensive, and easy to prepare. His company, Nissin, went on to become a multi-billion-dollar enterprise. It's now the leading player in the World Instant Noodles Association. The trade group holds noodle summits every other year. There have been a number of themes, from 2004's Happy World with Ramen to What role should instant noodles play in 50 years' time? In 2008, wither instant noodles. That's right. And then in 2010, a brief flirtation with rebranding, instant noodles became Earth food. <laughs> Now we may laugh. But the instant noodle makers in the association do have lofty ambitions. Their summit declarations talk about the mission of instant noodles and about the role of noodles in disaster relief. Fair enough. But they also faked Freddie Mercury's voice in an ad for Japanese TV. All right, Marco, that's three minutes up. What's the verdict? Hmm. Well. Cheeky with a certain、uh, aggressive soupçon of MSG. Yummy. One hundred billion times yummy. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how China's one-child policy invaded people's lives and privacy. Also, Buddha's caves. Filled with artistic treasures, plus a brawl between climbers and Sherpa guides on Everest. They were all around. They had stones in their hand. They were throwing stones on us. One tried to to use a, a pocket knife. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart. And celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients, who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Two weeks ago, we began a series exploring some of China's unfinished business, policies that the country is fast outgrowing, but that the Chinese leaders are reluctant to abandon. Then two bombs exploded a few miles away from our studios here in Boston, and our attention and that of the nation and the world shifted to the breaking news. So today, we're starting our series up again. You could say it's our unfinished business. All this week, we'll be hearing about five key reforms that more and more Chinese think are way past due. The world's China correspondent Mary Kay Magsad starts off with a look at China's one-child policy. In hip urban China, there's all kinds of choice, all kinds of freedoms that earlier generations under Communist Party rule could only have dreamt of. Where to eat, where to shop, what to watch, where to work, how to live. With one significant exception. The state still tells each Chinese family how many kids they can have and when. And while these days couples can get off with paying a stiff fine for violating the policy... The state has been known to be brutal to those who bend or break the rules. Tang Lechong was eight months pregnant in 2005 when family planning officials dragged her from her home in the southwestern province of Yunnan and forced her to have an abortion. She says she called the police. They came, but then shrugged and said the family planning officials were just doing their job. After all, she already had a child. She says she might even have agreed with them. 25 years under a coercive system can warp one's perspective, except that she'd actually obtained the required permit to have a second child. In different parts of China, couples are allowed to have a second child if the first child is a girl or if they're farmers or if they're from an ethnic minority. Tang and her husband qualified on all three counts. Tang says the problem was that it took her a couple of years to get pregnant. And every year, local officials are given a quota of how many births are allowed in their area. They might not get their promotions if the quota is exceeded. So when Tang finally did get pregnant, local family planning officials told her her permit had expired, even though it had no expiration date on it. A local court later confirmed that the family planning paper canceling the permit was bogus, but it stopped short of saying Tang was due compensation. Tang says what she actually wants is for the family planning officials who forced her to have the abortion to face criminal proceedings. She's been working on that for years, but it's not going anywhere. Wang Feng, a demographer and director of the Brookings Tsinghua Center for Public Policy in Beijing, says quotas have been part of the one-child policy since it started in 1982, with extreme measures sometimes taken to meet them. There were widespread practices of forced abortion, sterilization, IOD insertion. There were cases where farmers' houses were torn down, their draft animals were taken away, the properties were taken away, and the individuals were detained. Wang Feng says China's one-child policy may be one of the most draconian examples of government social engineering ever seen. And, especially in its early years, it was breathtakingly invasive. Some neighborhood committees would even post charts of women's menstrual periods on the wall so everyone could see if anyone was late. Zhang Li Jia, who wrote the memoir Socialism is Great, about coming of age working in a state-owned missile factory, recalls how the family planning official monitored things there. You exactly have to show your sanitary pass, your blood, to her. 
and then she will issue the sanitary towel. And often she will make comments. And looking back, it's so funny. She will, oh, you get a very heavy flow. And tell your mum to make you some duck bone chicken soup and things. <laughs> now, when the one-child policy was conceived, the party was genuinely concerned that China had too many people, and having many more would be disastrous. Having enough resources to go around is still a concern, says Sun Changmin, the deputy director of Shanghai's family planning department. He says China's population when the Communist Party took over was less than 600 million, but then public health improved, infant mortality dropped, people lived longer, and the population grew fast. In the midst of it all, Mao Zedong still encouraged women to have more children. A mistake the party recognized eventually. Swen says some Chinese studies have shown that the ideal population for China and its finite resources is 700 million, a bit more than half of what it is now. So he's all for continuing the one-child policy indefinitely. Wang Feng of the Brookings Tsinghua Center has a different view. He says having enough resources to go around isn't so much about how many people there are in a country, but about how the people in a country use resources. What's more, he says, it's not clear that the one-child policy in the end made that big of a difference. We oftentimes hear this claim that the one-child policy in China prevented 400 million births, and hence made such a great contribution. To population control in the world, and even、uh, help to slow down global warming. This is totally a bogus claim. Because he says the biggest drop in China's fertility rate happened in the 1970s, before the one-child policy started. It went from almost six to 2.5. If you're looking at other countries around China, like say Thailand or、uh, South Korea or even North Korea, fertility、uh, has Come down in all those places to the level that's very close to China, or not much higher. And they did that without coercion, without the 300 million abortions linked to the one-child policy, without the skewed gender gap, or the 150 million only children. That generation is now growing up as part of a shrinking workforce, supporting an ever larger elderly population. The ratio now is five workers to every retiree. In 2030, it will be two to one. A burden for the state and a drag on economic growth. Shanghai Family Planning Deputy Director Sun Changmin recognizes this is a serious problem. He says the fertility rate in Shanghai is now 0.9, less than one child per couple. So the Shanghai government lets only children who get married have two kids. Problem is, only about half of them do. Some of my friends also think about have another baby, but they haven't done this now. That's Zhao Hanlu, a 29-year-old online editor at a Shanghai newspaper. She sits with her husband in their sunny apartment. The walls decorated with paintings they've done themselves, including a not half bad copy of Van Gogh's Starry Night. She says her friends who are mothers find raising one child challenge enough. So when they're thinking about the second baby, they think, "Oh, who will help me to?" Raise the second child. The first one is make me crazy. And do we have enough money to have a second baby? Zhao's husband, Sky Zhang, a 28-year-old telecoms network consultant, says he'd still like to have two kids because he knows how lonely it can be as an only child. Because I feel alone when I was growing up, 
I just play with myself. <laughs> yeah, so if we have two children, I think they are not alone. Still, they say it's a hassle getting the paperwork to have a second child. Second baby is very, very difficult because you have a lot of papers, a lot of steps. More than ten,、uh, around twenty. That's to certify that each of the two parents is an only child and thus eligible to have a second child. Making it so difficult isn't exactly a great strategy for boosting a low fertility rate, but old habits die hard in a family planning apparatus used to exerting intrusive control. Still, change may be coming. One of the big reforms announced at China's annual legislative session in March was that the 30-year-old Family Planning Commission will be merged with the Ministry of Health. While the government says the one-child policy will continue, demographer Wang Feng thinks this may be the beginning of the end. I would say nobody in the decision-making body would insist that the policy should continue indefinitely. I think even the most cautious and conservative members would concede that someday this policy has to end. And he says collapsing the Family Planning Commission into the Ministry of Health. Means getting rid of many of the jobs that existed solely to implement a coercive policy. He believes that without the dedicated personnel or the dedicated department incentivized to use any means necessary to enforce the policy, the policy will gradually fade away. And what of those hundreds of thousands of workers who built their careers around charting menstrual cycles and punishing those who dared to have more than one child? Wang Feng cites the novel Frog. By the Nobel Prize-winning Chinese author Mo Yan. In that novel, he recorded the journey that this fictitious aunt, who forcefully aborted thousands of babies, as a person in charge of birth control in the local county, and how this aunt basically went nuts later on in her life, and recognizing the horrible crime that she had done. So I think this novel actually will be a vivid record that will go down in history for people to understand、uh, what happened. And what happened, he says, is that a policy the party enacted to help the country and itself has hurt more than helped in ways that will be felt for generations. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Another policy that may have hurt more than helped is China's practice of keeping millions of urban migrants tied to their villages. Without urban registration permits, they can't access services like healthcare, pensions, and good schools for their children. That's part two of our series tomorrow on the world, and we have a whole lot more on Mary Kay's China Past Due series at theworld.org. Our geo quiz today can be boiled down to one simple question: Where would you find caves carved out of limestone cliffs and filled with silk banners and colorful eighth-century frescoes to attract Buddhist worshippers? Pretty specific. Well, one answer is in western China, near the Gobi Desert, in the city of Dunhuang. But the answer we're looking for is a lot closer to home. Annette Giuliano is professor of Asian art and history at Rutgers University. So, describe the exhibit you've helped to create in New York to replicate these ancient Buddhist caves. We selected two replica caves. The China Institute has two small galleries, so that. One gallery is filled with one cave of a later date, eighth century, which was the peak of the cave building at Dunhuang, and then the other gallery has part of a smaller cave, which has a very distinctive architectural feature called a central stupa pillar, 
and has some objects from Dunhuang that were brought from the site. These were part of a larger space that was meant for worship. So it's the museum of the China Institute. That would be the China Institute Gallery in New York City. That's the answer to the geo-quiz. Uh, that's where you'll find those replicas of those Buddhist caves. Specifically, what street is it on? <laughs> it's on 65th Street between Lexington Avenue and Park. We'll, we'll link to it on our website. Now, these Buddhist caves were located at one end of the historic Silk Road. What actually happened in these caves during these epic travels along the Silk Road? Well, the site first started out for Buddhist monks to be places of meditation and study, but Dunhuang is located at the end where the two Silk Roads come across Xinjiang or Central Asia into China. It's also the place where people left China to return back along the Silk Roads, but it was a very active trade route. There was exotic goods as well as monks and merchants coming back and forth across the desert and stopping at Dunhuang, which became a center for both trade but also a religious center. Meditation for Buddhists uh, along the way, it almost sounds like those little chapels in airports. (laughs) No, it's quite a complex, and Buddhist monks resided there. It was also a translation center because one of the challenges of Buddhism spreading from India across Central Asia into China were language issues, since the sutras were often in Sanskrit and other related languages, so they had to be translated into Chinese. Sutras are kind of prayers, right? Right. The sutras are texts about the teachings of Mm. the Buddha. Okay. Beside monks, many of the merchants who traveled back and forth were multilingual, so they often helped participate in the translation. You first experienced these Dunhuang Caves in 1980. What was that like coming across them for the first time? And describe them inside. First of all, getting there in 1980 was extraordinary because you had to take a train for three or four days from Lanzhou, which is the capital of Gansu, where this is located. And I spent most of my time with my nose pressed against the window looking at the most extraordinary changes in landscape, Mm. to black deserts, to then the sand deserts. And they still have great sandstorms. So Mm. you uh, have to wear cover your head periodically as the sand just uh, blows against it. Then you get to these looks like a beehive of holes, but when you walk into the cave, it's extraordinary contrast with the brilliant colors because they used a lot of mineral pigments like lapis lazuli and turquoise, which they ground up in cinnabar, brilliant reds. So the inside is a glow. It's dark, but then candles originally, but also flashlights, and it was just an amazing transformation to be inside of these spaces. The paint is startling. And, you know, recently they found unfinished caves, but then they actually did an excavation and found out that that was where the community lived. There would be monks who were painting, painters of the caves, and they lived there. And we brought over from this northern end excavation some paint pots, which still have colors in them, to show that this was actually a community of monks. They were also pilgrims who came to visit, and some of them left Persian coins and other things that they left behind, so that it was actually a place for people to stay as well as for monks to live. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Annette Giuliano, professor of Asian art and history at Rutgers University, telling us about the new Dunhuang exhibit at the China Institute Gallery in New York. Professor Giuliano, thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. We've posted links to the exhibit and a video of one of the actual Dunhuang caves at theworld.org.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's an icy atmosphere at the top of the world today, and I'm not just talking weather. A brawl erupted on Mount Everest between some Western climbers and their local Sherpa guides. According to information trickling down 22,000 feet from the mountain, three experienced European climbers ignored a request by their lead Sherpa guide not to step over ropes they were securing for their climb. The climbers ignored the request and stepped over the ropes to get to their tent anyway. What happened next is still unclear. The Sherpas claim the climbers caused ice to fall on them below. The climbers say they returned to their tents and were then encircled by a group of angry Sherpas. What is clear is that a fight ensued. Swiss climber Yuli Steck described the scene to the BBC. They were all around. They had stones in their hand. They were throwing stones on us. One tried to to use a, a pocket knife to hit Simone Moro. Luckily, he just hit his belt of his backpack, so nothing's happened. Then the three climbers fled down the mountain to Everest Base Camp, where they posted an account of their side of the story on their expedition website. The lead Sherpa involved in the rope incident has remained quiet. This unfortunate incident comes just weeks before the 60th anniversary of New Zealander Sir Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay's first successful climb up Mount Everest in 1953. Since then, more than 3,000 climbers have followed, each with the help and guidance of local Sherpas. Finally today, the term remix culture is used to describe the combination of old cultural materials to make brand new works. In the world of music in particular, older original content serves as the building blocks for new creations. From Morocco, producer Jordan Fletcher sent us a story about one musician who hopes to use remix culture as a way to educate consumers and give back to struggling folk artists. It's late at night, in a rocky pasture high in the Middle Atlas Mountains. Under the burning glow of a single gas lamp, a dozen musicians and onlookers are assembled in a circle inside a spare shepherd's hut. They're playing the music of the indigenous Amazigan people of central Morocco. Far from disapproving eyes, the women have removed their headscarves and kaftans, revealing lush hair and flowing dresses underneath. Whiskey and hashish pass freely among the revelers. But this is no ordinary music gathering. It's also a high-tech recording session. There's an array of microphones and camera equipment spread around the room. I should probably take a step back for a minute. I'm here lending a hand to an old friend, Hatim Belyamani. We definitely live in a remix culture, and in a remix culture, we just get really excited at the ease with which we can sample anything from anywhere around the world. We've been driving across Morocco on a mission in search of traditional folk musicians to record and photograph. You hear all kinds of stuff. You hear dance music or more avant-garde music that has samples from India or Uzbekistan, Brazil. But at the same time, I feel like there's something important missing. Hatim has a big idea. He plans to sample these recordings and then build an iPad app that will allow users around the world to remix the original music and images into entirely new creations. Hatim wanted to feel more connected to the music samples he was consuming as an electronic musician. He also wanted to learn more about his native country. So last winter, he quit his job at Apple and set out for Morocco. But something's been nagging at him ever since he started this journey. It's very important for me that I get their validation. There's a small part of me that fears that they will experience 
transformation as uh, some sort of corruption of their works. Then this project becomes more about what, what I want and much less about what they want. The team's search led him to Canifra, a small city in the Middle Atlas Mountains, renowned for its traditional musicians. There, he met Brahim Fadel, a singer and Kamenja fiddle player, who ekes out a living for his family by selling CDs and MP3 thumb drives out of a small kiosk. I sat down with him for about three hours that day, just listening, listening to his words, listening to his music, watching some of the videos on his little screens. And so I knew right away that there was a bond between us. Rahim organized Hatim's first recording sessions with local Berber musicians. Then Hatim returned to San Francisco and programmed the content into two small electronic boxes. Using buttons, knobs, and sliders, he conjures an experience. It samples and remixes the original sounds and images with each other. For example, press the button for bass sounds, and you also see an image of a bass guitar-like gimbal. As for percussion, an Abendir frame drum comes into view. Turn a knob, and the sounds and images warp and dissolve together, endlessly morphing. It's kind of like the ultimate video game for people who create electronic music. Hatim's invention drew the attention of dance music fans back home in California. And from there, the idea grew. I wanted to figure out a way to, to create a new funding mechanism for these musicians because I can't just take their stuff and not pay them adequately or feel like the only way to pay them adequately is to give them a one-time fee when I'm recording them. None of that felt right to me, and it's definitely not sustainable. So the next step is to transform the two electronic boxes into an iPad app that Hatim hopes will channel a share of any proceeds back to the musicians. You know, part of me thinks it's uh, foolish, but I certainly see the potential, and uh, I'm going to try. Which is why we're driving back to Hanifa, to look for more musicians to sample. Hatim's vision comes to pass. One day soon, you might find yourself remixing images and sounds of musicians living on the other side of the world. In these moments, right here, could have been the beginning. For the world, this is Jordan Fletcher. It's not just the results that are cool. You also got to watch how remix culture is made, from recording musicians deep within a Moroccan forest at four in the morning to mixing those recordings with the latest digital audio gear. We posted a video at theworld.org. From the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.